I hope that in the future, a president will be more supportive of intelligence professionals. It is the week of August 3rd, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Jeremy Bash, former chief of staff at the CIA and the Department of Defense. During his time in government, Jeremy worked on a number of key initiatives, including the creation of a new defense strategy, the formation of two defense budgets, the drawdown of two wars, counterterrorism operations, a new cyber strategy, and a range of sensitive intelligence operations. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So in the news this week is the Chinese app TikTok, which I confess I do not have on my phone. I'm not sure anyone would want to see me dancing. It is all the rage among the generation below us. But TikTok has Chinese connections and the administration is targeting TikTok and saying they may ban TikTok from the U.S. There's this offer on the table where perhaps Microsoft will buy them and clean them up and make it suitable for an American audience. What's your reaction to this battle over TikTok? Well, I've got three school-aged daughters, so TikTok is very popular in my house. Talk of banning TikTok is not very popular, as you can imagine. But look, I think the administration is kind of showcasing the confluence of several streams here. Number one is there's been longstanding bipartisan concern about Chinese technology in the United States and the interest by the Chinese government in collecting data on Americans to fuel their algorithms and to fuel their social data gathering system. Second is that I think the president in particular has been upset at TikTok in particular because of what happened at the Tulsa rally where a lot of people mobilized on TikTok to buy a no-show tickets. Third, this is election year politics because getting tough on China, I think Trump has concluded is good politics. But there is a concern about apps on people's devices where code is written in China that are being used to take and collect information about Americans. And CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, has been concerned for a while about personally identifiable information, PII, as a national asset that has national security implications. But I think I have to say that I think in some ways Trump is focusing on the wrong challenge. It's not so much the cyber challenge from the app on your phone stealing your data, because frankly, any file on your phone, any app on your phone can steal your data. The challenge really is is that China is the national champion of the Chinese government. It is an example of a tech company being advanced by the government of China. And we in the United States are talking about actually breaking up tech companies and regulating them and using Section 230 uh, to take away some of their traditional ability to operate. So if we do all that to our tech industry and China's advancing their tech industry, we are going to fall farther behind. So I think that's the big challenge that we should be focusing on. One of the other items in the news right now is we're being warned by law enforcement authorities that China and Russia are spying on our vaccine research. And it seems like we're getting new and different versions of the espionage game playing out in public. As we go through this pandemic, there's this other crazy issue of possible seed packets from mysteriously originating in China that is landing in Americans' mailboxes. But it's almost like every story gets stranger than the last one. You were a high administration official in the Obama administration. How do you process all of these things and try to come up with a coherent policy against a global competitor like China? There are so many different things going on, so many challenges, so many different things that you have to cover. How do you come up with a comprehensive approach? What is your assessment of how this administration has done so? 
One of the first ways that I learned about the national security establishment was by reading Tom Clancy. Someone told me recently that Tom Clancy used to say that the difference between real life and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. And I think increasingly we're seeing that real life doesn't always make sense. But it does make sense that China and Russia would be after our vaccine research because, of course, that's a strategic asset for the United States. In the same way that our space program in the 1960s was a strategic asset. And of course, that was a major target of espionage by the Russians by the Soviet Union. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they would be trying to steal our most valuable secrets because, of course, whoever can conquer the vaccine, quote unquote, can actually be quickest on the road to recovery from the coronavirus. Another hot topic, particularly in Iran, are these explosions that have occurred in various parts of the Iranian industrial base. Some of them seem to be connected to their nuclear program that's been going on for the last month or two. You combine that with this report from that I saw on Fox News indicating the administration is being much more aggressive in offensive cyber operations. What's your take on the things that are happening in Iran and the possibility that the administration is being much more forward-leaning in its offensive cyber operations? So those two things have an overlap here. Well, first of all, let me be clear. I've been out of government for seven years and I have no idea what the actual story is. But if I had to imagine what might be going on, is there a number of regional players, to include the Israelis, to include Gulf countries, that have been long concerned about what Iran is doing with respect to its nuclear program, particularly what's happening at Natanz, where centrifuges had been spinning, according to the Iranians, as part of their civilian program. But of course, we believe that there were military dimensions to it. We, meaning the United States and the West, believe there were military dimensions to it. And so if I found out that a regional player had paid surrogates and proxies to go conduct sabotage operations, covert sabotage operations, it wouldn't surprise me. But one of the things that's interesting about, for example, the way the Israelis operate in the region, you see this in Syria, is they don't beat their chest. They don't go around saying, we did this, look at what we blew up. If they did anything, and that's a big if because I don't know, if they did anything, they let the ambivalence hang in the air and they don't put the adversary on the spot into a defensive corner of having to lash out. They send the message, they send it sometimes quietly, sometimes loudly, but they achieve their strategic objectives in part by not claiming credit and I think the one lesson maybe for U.S. policymakers is that covert action, which is when we engage in activities overseas to influence the political or military conditions without acknowledging a U.S. role, it can be a very strategic tool in the toolbox, has to be conducted very carefully. You referenced cyber attacks. I would not be surprised if covert cyber actions were a bigger part of the toolbox in the last couple of years and will probably be more so in the coming years. I almost feel like you were setting up a possible contrast with the Trump administration administration, which seems to be unable to not brag about anything that it does. Well, I think the Trump administration's policies with respect to the Middle East have been interesting. First, you know, we came very close last year to having an all-out military confrontation with Iran. And although I have no doubt that the United States would have ultimately prevailed in an all-out military confrontation with Iran, I shudder to think what the costs would have been versus the upside benefit. And why do I say we were so close to it? Well, of course, we killed Qasem Soleimani at the end of 2019. And then I think we hoped and prayed that Iran wouldn't cross any of our red lines. And they came very close to 
crossing our red line because they, for the first time in history, fired ballistic missiles cross-border targeting U.S. service members. The last time, by the way, that U.S. service members have been targeted in cross-border ballistic missile strikes was by Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War when he fired scuds at our bases in Saudi Arabia. So this doesn't happen every day. This happens once in a generation, usually in the context of military conflict. And of course, several dozen U.S. service members were injured. Uh, and if one of them had died, that would have clearly crossed Trump's own red line, and we would have potentially been uh, forced into a military confrontation with Iran. So I think that was a very risky move by the administration, one that I don't think got us a lot of benefit, and one that entailed quite a bit of risk. So my recollection of the events preceding the killing of Qasem Soleimani was there was kind of a tit-for-tat between the U.S. and Iran with an increasing crescendo of action. At a certain point, the Iranians shot down an American drone, and the president decided to respond, but then as the operation was launching, decided to cancel the operation and not respond. So how do you as a policymaker avoid that dilemma of escalating the response to the next level while at the same time demonstrating to an adversary that, you know, you're not to be trifled with? Well, I think the mistake we made in that case, in the case of the drone shoot down in June of 2019, was that we didn't do anything. We did nothing at all. And I don't find credible the president's explanations was well, the military never told me there could be collateral damage. Give me a break. I, in every slide I've seen that the Pentagon produces, the first slide says, you know, risk to our forces and risk to mission. And risk to our forces is really talking about, uh, you know, what risk there would be and also risk to civilian lives. So, of course, the Pentagon told him. I think he, I don't know, lost his nerve or just changed his mind. I don't know exactly what happened, but I think not responding was dangerous because it sent a message to the Iranians that they could escalate. And they did continue to escalate. They continued to put limpet mines on Emirati ships. They continued to arm Shia militias in Iraq. And that led to this escalation in, later in the year where they fired weaponry into U.S. bases and killed a U.S. contractor. So I think the answer to your question is you respond proportionally and you respond strategically and you don't let provocations go unanswered. But you don't also don't over-rotate, which is what we did in the Soleimani killing, and spark a regional confrontation if you don't really want to have that regional confrontation, if that doesn't achieve your strategic objectives. I want to uh, I want to ask you about the Russian bounties on American service personnel in Afghanistan. But before we totally leave the Middle East proper, let me ask you about the general instinct on the behalf of the last two U.S. presidents, both President Trump and President Obama. I, in my view, wanted to withdraw from the Middle East, not completely, of course, but certainly not at the level where President Bush was when we were going into Iraq in 2003. They wanted less of the U.S. footprint. President Obama did it in a certain way. He got a nuclear agreement with the Iranians. Uh, you can criticize it or praise it for its merits, but that was his mechanism to get the U.S. a little less involved in the Middle East. President Trump has taken a different tack where he's strengthening relationships with traditional allies, Israel, Saudi, but then wanting to pull back the level of U.S. troop commitments to the region. What's your take? Should the U.S. be withdrawing from the Middle East now? Is it a place where the cost-benefit analysis no longer indicates that that's where we should be? Or should we be pursuing more engagement and try to produce better outcomes in the Middle East for ourselves? I would say two things. Number one is, I believe we should be very engaged in the Middle East. I think we should have a robust presence in the Middle East. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a military presence. And by that, I mean, it can be a diplomatic presence, an economic presence, an intelligence presence. I think if we withdraw from the Middle East and just take the number of U.S. personnel in the region down, 
and are seen to be walking away from our commitments there, I think it could have a very detrimental effect because we'll be back there someday, but it won't be on as good a terms because invariably a lot of threats emanate from the destabilized situation in the Middle East and those threats find their way to our shores. Second is, I do think that with respect to troop drawdowns, the president has this kind of notion of we got to bring the boys home as if it's World War II and the boys have been overseas for you know years. Well, they haven't. I mean, troops have been rotating in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan almost nonstop since 9-11. Yes, there have been a lot of wear and tear and loss of precious lives among service members who have served in those war zones, but it's also an all-volunteer force, and we still have the greatest most highly motivated military on the face of the planet. This is the Vietnam era where our military is suffering from morale and it's weakening because of our troop deployments. So I think keeping a couple of thousand troops in Afghanistan is sound. I think having a small presence in Iraq is also sound. But I also think the idea of withdrawing and uh, and sending a signal to the world that it's America first and that our alliances aren't worth very much. I think that's also the wrong message. Don't forget that a lot of our NATO allies are our principal allies in Afghanistan. And so when you undermine the NATO alliance the way President Trump has done, you also undermine the mission in Afghanistan. And if we're concerned about the results in Afghanistan, we might have only ourselves to blame. What's your take on the reports that we've gotten intel that the Russians are putting bounties on the heads of Americans in Afghanistan and how the administration should be reacting to that. It seems like there's a lot of confusion over whether this is just one report or if it's been fully vetted through the intelligence community and they've come to a definite conclusion. Seems like we got a, like part of the story, but maybe not the whole story. What's your assessment? Yeah, look, I mean, there's no such thing as fully vetted intelligence. If something was fully vetted and fully confirmed, it wouldn't be intelligence. It would be openly discussed, common operating platform for diplomacy. But intelligence is by its nature nature uncertain. And uncertain information is presented to the president all the time, every day in the president's daily brief. Now, the president at first said they didn't send it to me because it was uncertain. That's wrong. Uncertain things are given to him all the time. He then said it never reached my desk. Well, it did. It's actually in a book that was physically on his desk. So he did receive it. Now, then he said, well, I didn't read it and it wasn't told to me orally. Well, that's his own fault. And it's the fault also of his most senior team, his national security advisor and others. They should have gone to him and said, Mr. President, there's something in the book today that you need to pay attention to. I'm kind of amazed and shocked they didn't. I think they probably did. And he probably either forgot or wanted to downplay it. But let's just say they didn't. Let's just say they all, none of them mentioned it. And I think he should say, you know, you got a problem as being a member of my staff. And if he really cared about protecting our troops, and if he was really worried about this intel from Russia, he would have fired his national security advisor for not telling him about it. If you read the PDB, you got to understand there's stuff in there about the election in Mali and about the economy in Argentina. I mean, there's stuff that's a lot less explosive than a threat to our troops from a country we're trying to invite into the G7. And it, it is inconceivable even to this day that the president has not credited the information, has not asked for more information about it. He has not done anything against Russia. He's had seven phone calls with Vladimir Putin and never once demarched him on it. In fact, last week, Axios asked him, did you mention it to Putin on your last phone call in late July? He said, no, I didn't. And he said, because it's a hoax. 
I mean, come on. He, he knows it's not a hoax. And I, I really feel bad for the families of service members who have to worry whether the commander in chief has their back. All great points. I want to ask your opinion on something. It seems that our president has this crazy attitude towards Russia that he can somehow persuade Vladimir Putin to change his ways by shining him up a little bit, praising him in certain fora, not responding to certain provocations that maybe another president would have. At the same time, his administration, President Trump's administration, has taken some pretty tough actions against Russia, a lot of economic sanctions. The administration seems totally against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So does Congress. So there's this kind of top level attempt to gain some sort of traction with Putin combined with this tougher approach at the policy level, like at the cabinet level and below. You know, we normally criticize this approach and we're aghast at some of the things the president says about Vladimir Putin and Russia and his failure to acknowledge their great deficits on human rights and democracy and other things. At the same time, is this a plausible way forward for the U.S. to deal with a very difficult adversary in Russia? I don't think so. I mean, I think you're right that there are some people in the administration, in the agencies who are very concerned about Russia and who have been trying to push forward a tough line on Russia, but not the president. The president, what has he done? Number one is he has gone out of his way to undermine NATO and even came inches from pulling out of NATO altogether, as we now know from several accounts. Second is he has invited Putin into the G7, which of course they were kicked out of after they invaded Ukraine. Um, Third is he has been very slow, very reluctant to enforce sanctions passed by Congress on Russia. And it's only after Congress has really held the administration's feet to the fire that the administration has had to reluctantly tighten the screws on some of these uh, sanctions on Russia. So I actually think the president has been incredibly weak in the face of Putin, not to mention all the other atmospherics, not to mention standing in Helsinki next to Putin and saying, I believe him over the word of the CIA, not to mention the fact that he's never once rebuked Russia for interfering in the 2016 election, not to mention the fact that after Russia tried to kill Sergei Skripal, who was an alleged intelligence operative who the United States helped win his freedom. And the United States really put a lot on the line to get him out. And the Russians went and tried to assassinate him on the streets of the UK. Trump did nothing. He said nothing to Putin. And there was, again, no response. So I think, unfortunately, despite the fact that there probably are a couple of Russia hawks in the administration, and they wrote a good national security strategy that says that Russia is a great power competitor, I think the president is incredibly obsequious. You know, then you might ask why. Is it because he thinks he can work over Putin? I mean, maybe. But I mean, putting aside all of the stuff from the Steele dossier, just discount it because say it's incredible. Even if you put all the stuff aside, it is still the case that the Trump organization was trying to build a major real estate project in Moscow, Trump Tower Moscow. They needed approval from Putin to do it. They still need approval from Putin to do it. And if the Trump organization ever wants to do it, they need that approval in the same way they need approval from Turkey to build the big Trump towers in, in Turkey. And look, I think the reality is that Trump just doesn't separate these in his mind. In his mind, business and politics are the same. He's been a businessman. And he wants to work with people who can help his business. And he thinks it's good for America. And that's just the way he is. So, Jeremy, you spent a couple of years at the Central Intelligence Agency working for Leon Panetta, a guy I have a ton of respect for, who's been a great policymaker and politician for a long time, whole lifetime, really. I've noticed that he has been very reluctant to criticize the current administration in public. 
That is not necessarily true of other former directors of the CIA, and I'm not going to name any names. I can think of at least one Republican, at least one Democrat. What's your view on the role of someone who has played a role in the intelligence community at a very senior level, leaving government, getting involved politically? Is that is that a smart thing to do, or is that something that should only be done with great reluctance? Well, I think Secretary Panetta, I mean, you kind of noted this, you know, he doesn't just knee jerk and, and criticize just to criticize and he's not shrill. He also served as Secretary of Defense after he served as CIA director. So he's in a little bit of a different posture because he's always asked questions about national security policy. And, and, and I served as his chief of staff at DOD. You know, as for the role of former intelligence chiefs, I understand why traditionally those people have not been part of the punditry class and and kind of think tank crowd and panel discussion crowd. I do get it. I do. I really understand it. But I also think that something fundamental has changed in the way this administration has treated its intelligence professionals. And I think in some ways, the truce that you kind of have referenced, the historical truce, was violated when the president referred to intelligence professionals as Nazis and said that they had to go back to school. And he went to the uh, memorial wall at CIA and talked about how many times his face had been on the cover of Time magazine um, and obviously blamed intelligence professionals for not warning him about coronavirus, which was false, and blamed intelligence professionals for not warning him about the Russians' actions in Afghanistan, which was false. And I think at some point it kind of becomes too much. And it's really important for intelligence leaders to speak up for their people. And just to give you an example, when Secretary Panetta was CIA director and someone from his own party at the time, Nancy Pelosi, who was the Democratic leader in Congress at the time, she's now speaker, when she was criticizing CIA during the interrogation techniques issues and saying, you know, they lied to me, they lied to me. And that was not correct. Panetta spoke out. He put out a statement and he said, you know, sometimes the decibel level in Washington gets too high to the point where I can't just let my people tune it out. I've got to speak out against it. And this was not true. And so, you know, sometimes it's important for intelligence professionals and former intelligence professionals to speak up against what they see as a manifest injustice against their own professionals and the work that they do. Jeremy, the current director of the CIA, Gina Haspel, is a career intelligence officer. Her appointment was praised on both sides of the aisle. What's your assessment of the way she's playing her role in leading the agency? I think very highly of Gina Haspel and her credentials to lead the CIA. I said so at the time. And from everything I can tell, she's working very hard to keep CIA out of the crosshairs of a president who, again, it's unclear how he wants to utilize intelligence or blame intelligence professionals when things seem not to go his way. And so she's, I think, working very hard to keep CIA off the proverbial X. And I think that's the best she can do now. I have no doubt that she has a very complicated and tough job because the threats out there in the world are very challenging. The collection challenges given technology are very hard. And a president who, again, only episodically will pay attention to intelligence and when he does, it's unclear whether or not it's being absorbed. So I have to say, I'm impressed that she has survived and that she has led the agency through this challenging time. But I hope that in the future, a president will be more uh, supportive of intelligence professionals and will be less inclined 
to undermine what has been a great tradition in our country, which is nonpartisan, nonpolitical intelligence activities that are the foundation for policy decisions so that when we commit our troops into harm's way or we initiate a diplomatic initiative or undertake uh, an important activity on the international stage, we do so with the very best information. That's a great take. Let me just ask you if there's any other policy or initiative that you think the next administration should take, aside from restoring a lot of the lost luster and uh, and respect for the for the community. Is there any program or initiative the next administration, whether it's next year or five years from now, can take to advance our intelligence community appropriately? Well, I think the most important thing facing our intelligence community is the fact that everybody has a cell phone. And there is ubiquitous surveillance. There is ubiquitous encryption. It is very difficult, very difficult to have clandestine discussions with sources. And we have such an ocean of publicly available data that we have to go through and analyze and integrate into our secret intelligence. And these technological challenges are daunting, but it's going to be incumbent on the next set of intelligence leaders to grapple with them and to help them inform policy. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.